back again with another episode of Securiosity, and we're going to guess the majority of you were at either Black Hat B-Sides or DEF CON, and hey, why not make some room on your schedule for the next great event? New York Cyber Week is a festival that brings together thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to exchange big ideas and collaborate to solve the most critical cyber challenges. Your complimentary week-long pass unlocks access to numerous conferences, parties, hackathons, roundtables, and other events. Sign up as an individual, bring your team, or host your own event. Community events are at the heart and soul of New York Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet the top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. It will take place September 16th through the 20th. For more information, check out nycyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for August 9th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Right smack in the middle of the Las Vegas desert, we will talk about all the news coming out of the Black Hat and B-Side Security Conference. In our interview, we talk with CoFence CTO Aaron Higby about his company's research into a sextortion campaign that is aimed at enterprises. We got new APT groups, phone company employees being arrested, and cybersecurity issues in planes. Let's get to all of it. Members of a Chinese state-sponsored hacking group have been using their skills to enrich themselves for years in operations targeting the gaming industry. FireEye revealed on Wednesday. In a first for China-based group, the hackers are using malware typically reserved for spying for personal gain. The group has been relentless, regaining a foothold in networks when computer specialists drive them out. FireEye's John Holtzquist said, We've ousted them from networks only to find them back in the force. APT's 41 availing comes as the U.S.-China relationship has soured, and after years of the U.S. allegations, the Chinese government has sponsored cyber economic espionage. Greg, what else do you know about this? Um, that it looks like APT 41 has been around for a while, even though we just got uh, a number stamped next to them in, in the list. Uh, it looks like they overlap with this group called Barium or Wintea, which we, we've talked about, but we've talked about Wintea mm-hmm. before. Wintea's been all over the place. Uh, when it comes to certain attacks. Um, The group has been making money since 2012, I think, and they've kind of, it's weird. You know, a lot of these groups that we talk about are either strictly criminal, strictly for for profit, or strictly like nation state espionage. And this one seems to do both. Like since they've been tracked from like 2012, 2013, they've maintained a balance between state-sponsored work and financial moonlighting. So is that Uh, why they have two names? Because they do both. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with marketing as well. I mean, uh, FireEye does this number nomenclature for a while, okay. and then other groups figure out other names to attach to it. Okay. And uh, it's because, you know, even though companies are getting better and better at attribution, it's tough to find a select group and say, this group is the same as this group. And, Got it. And, and the names okay. are... are um, generally tough to pin down as just their carbon copies one another but yeah i mean they've been all over the place the group has gone after organizations in i think the list is like india italy south korea turkey switzerland and uh hitting the uk and the us as well so it's clear that i i think what makes this group quote-unquote an apt is the amount of uh attacks that they've gone after because i know winty as well winty I think was behind, we, we reported on it last year, that Bayer, uh, the German pharmaceutical manufacturer, was hit with some pretty nasty attacks. And I believe that that has been 
attributed to Win T. So um, this group has been around. Um, I think by stamping them with this uh, FireEye nomenclature, you're going to start to see more and more research pour out because it's clear people are watching them. Very interesting. So researchers at IBM X-Force Red have updated an age-old concept to demonstrate how computer exploits can be shipped in the mail. They assembled a 3G device the size of a small cell phone to be delivered to the desk of a victim. While on the way to the target, the device scans for nearby wireless networks and sends its location back to a server. Once we see that a warship device, which is what they're calling it, has arrived at a target's front door, mailroom, or loading dock, we were able to remotely control the system and run tools to either passively or actively attempt to attack the target's wireless access, the company said in a blog post Wednesday. Jen, worried about your Amazon packages now? I feel like I'm not really a good target, but that's really interesting. I got a chance to talk to Charles Henderson, the lead of IBM's X-Force Red, about this. And he actually showed me what this device is. And it's actually really, really interesting. He showed how it can fit into the wall of a cardboard box. And it's really no more, like if I opened it up and, and showed it to you, you'd be like, that's it. It's literally almost like a cell phone battery attached to a location chip attached to a Raspberry Pi, which is attached to like a mobile modem. That Like, that's it. And he was uh, showing it to me. We're gonna have a video up on CyberScoop soon. I, I got to actually have him walk me through uh, the, the components of everything. But it costs like 90 bucks to assemble. And he was explaining to me because it's a Raspberry Pi computer, and there are these, you know, these little devices mm-hmm. uh, that are really, really popular. It actually has more computing power than like your first ever Xbox. Okay. Like, think about how big Xboxes yeah, yeah. were. Like that computing size has been dropped down to basically the size of a pack of gum. So it, it's a really, really interesting sort of attack that they have dreamt up here. So is anyone actually using it, or is this just sort of like? An example. So, yeah, I, I really think, yeah, this is an example. Um, it's, it's a very, very novel attack, but I think it was done just to show how much information you can pull from a, a very, very small device that's hidden in ways that you would never think. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with, like, enterprise cybersecurity. This isn't, you right. know, sitting on somebody's cloud or anything like so that. So did we just give somebody ideas on how to do bad things? No, uh, well, I mean, that's what Black Hat and DEF CON <laughs> is for, right? True. So early this spring, Russian government-linked hackers used three popular Internet of Thing devices with weak security to access several Microsoft customers' networks, then tried infiltrating more privileged accounts. The Stronium Group, also known as APT28 and Fancy Bear, leveraged weak security in an office printer, video decoders, and voice over IP, or VoIP, phone. The incidents highlight the widespread security issues IoT devices may introduce moving forward. Another cautionary tale in the line with the National Security, the National Institute of Standards and Technology said earlier this year. And it's only the latest example of Russian hackers targeting innocuous connected devices. Stronium is the same group that was behind the VPN filter attacks that targeted 500,000 network devices in 2018. So, Greg, here's the printer security story you've been dreading. Yeah, uh, it looks like all IoT devices, really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the printer security thing, that's just... Uh, printers get looped into IoT attacks, and while I believe it's real, I mean, we're talking, like, the VoIP phones right. are, are yeah. much juicier of a target. And, look, this is... The attack vector here is something that we've been talking about for a while. The devices, 
you know, were able to be, you know, manipulated because they, the passwords, the passwords were, were no, the, them. The default, yeah. they were uh, default passwords and then hackers scan the networks for these devices and then it's just a way in. Um, I mean, when you're running TCP dump, which is pretty simple to do and then pull something into a command and control server, I mean... It, the group behind this, obviously, Fancy Bear knows all types of sophisticated sure. attacks. This one isn't that sophisticated. This is yeah. pretty easy, just based on some open source intelligence and and some scanning. Um, this is one of their relatively easy attacks to do. So, watch your phones, watch your printers, and be careful. Yeah. A 34-year-old Pakistani man has been charged with paying AT&T employees more than $1 million to plant malicious software that it makes it possible to use iPhones outside AT&T's controls. Mohammed Fad is accused of orchestrating a five-year fraud operation that involved approaching AT&T employees, often through Facebook or by phone, then offering cash in exchange for the employee's agreement to unlock specific phones based on their identifying IMEI codes. The scheme unlocked more than two million cell phones over the five-year span, and Fad, who also went by the name Frank Zhang, operated under a company called Endless Trading FEZ, Prosecutors say he paid one employee $500,000 over the time period in question. Jen, this really throws you for a loop when someone who is inside the company, yet on the other side of the world, can mess with your phone. I mean, $500,000, I'm sure, would get a lot of people to do bad things. Bribes. Bri- yeah. Bribes. <laughs> Bribes. <laughs> uh, you know, they... Uh, money talks. Money does talk, uh, yeah. Money talks. Um, but yeah, this is... You know, uh, again, we talk so much about protecting your phone and mm-hmm. worrying about all this. And this is something so outside of your control that when they have the ability inside the company to, you know, SIM swap, SIM jack, jailbreak your phones. Yep. Yeah. You got to really feel at a loss. I mean, that <laughs> this well, is it's, it's I mean, the you, company. You can't control that stuff, but you can control some of the other things, right? Like at least make it a little bit harder. Yeah. For like the average person to hack into your phone. Yeah, but I feel like also this isn't the average person because no, it's not. this person's, I mean, just a couple clicks away from inside the company infrastructure to right. just putting your phone out there and letting people do whatever it is that they want to do with it. So that you just it, have to take a flyer and, and hope that you're not one of the victims. Yeah, definitely. In March, there were massive days long power outages in Venezuela, causing several fatalities and pushing the South American country into turmoil, but then continued to the present day. Around the same time as the first outages, a cyber epidemiology group dubbed Machete by ESET began siphoning off gigabits of confidential documents from Venezuela's military, an accessible campaign that is ongoing. While there are some compromised computers in Ecuador, Colombia, and Nicaragua, the primary focus is Venezuela, as over half of the compromised computers in the campaign belong to the Venezuelan military. Greg, what else do you know about this? Um, I think that you can draw a lot from the fact that Venezuela is going through an extreme amount of turmoil and suddenly the nation states are trying to figure out anything they can about Venezuela, particularly military-wise. I mean, the people responsible for these attacks look to have had physical access to compromised computers. So you're you're talking about spies here. Like we don't know who, obviously, right. but um, it's clear that from ESET's research, and they had physical access to compromised computers that 
it's it's a very very real situation down there in in Venezuela, and we're not just talking about hackers sort of taking control there. Like this is this is some high level uh, state sanctioned espionage stuff to to figure out what's what's really going on and what's so going to come next. What do we know about um, the people in Ecuador and Colombia and Nicaragua that have have this issue? Are they somehow tied into? What's going on in Venezuela? I would imagine only because look, they're neighbors. So they're neighbors. Yeah. They're they're going to work together. There's diplomacy there, and they have to worry about their borders because we've heard that uh, people in Venezuela are fleeing because the, sure. the power's out. They can't yeah. get food. They can't get medicine. So you're talking about company or companies. You're talking about countries that are in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that they have their own plans, government-wise, on how to contain or just basically how to deal with the situation. Sure, yeah. That's also worthwhile for nation-state espionage uh, organizations to, know what's going to, on. to figure out, to get a full grasp of you know what is happening in the region. So, um, yeah, I would not be surprised if we keep seeing these stories pop up um, with Venezuela because it's clear that... The nation-state intelligence agencies are focused on what's going on there, right. and therefore you're going to start to see some interesting cyber intrusions pop up. So I would definitely keep an eye on this. I know we'll be keeping an eye mm-hmm. on this, but it, it, it's very—it's going to be very, very interesting. This was the first kind of story to, to trickle out about what's going on in Venezuela, and I have a feeling we're going to have a lot more. So Android and iOS vendors created 440 security patches over the first half of 2019, according to an analysis of mobile activity released last week by Zimperium. That figure is a 30% jump from the first half of 2018 and is especially notable because most of these 440 flaws were categorized as critical. The company analyzed roughly 40 million endpoints as part of its State of the Enterprise report to find that Android apps were especially dodgy. 45% of all attacks were malicious apps, compared to less than 1% on iOS devices. That finding, in particular, fits with recent CyberScoop reports highlighting just how nasty some of these seeming harmless apps can be. Jen, got to be a silver lining here, though, that the numbers have gone up in terms of security patching. Sure, but I guess the question is, why would you have an Android phone at this point? Well, if you have a Google Pixel, I feel you're okay, because Android is Google, the phone is Google, and you're going to get security updates okay. as, as they roll out. Otherwise, yeah, I think you are taking a roll of the dice because of all of the other manufacturers. Like the, 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 supply, the software supply chain there um, is crowded and it's hard to get security updates out in the same way that uh, Apple has done. That being said, look, you extrapolate it further, Android phones are cheap. I mean, iPhones are running now close to $1,000 for sure. new models. So not everybody can afford that. So you're going to have these these people that buy Android phones. And that, that gets, you know, to a bigger existential problem is why are the, you know, less wealthy masses less secure? Like, let's figure out a way to get Android security up to the point where everybody can be secure. Well, and that's, I mean, that's what I think would would happen right is that we would make everything more secure you would think they would take steps but i guess again if it's a cheaper phone then maybe that's the reason yeah they're they're trying and i I know there are a lot of people at google and android you know working on this stuff but what can you do when oh i I know what you can do i think the, the work has to be done with the app store like this the report said 45 percent of all these attacks were malicious apps Right. Be careful what you're downloading. And Apple's walled garden, 
that that's a totally different subject. We could talk about the way that they've set up their business, but from security standpoint, you don't have this problem. I mean, that's hard though, right? I mean, people have kids and the kids download like a ton of free games and then, you know, right. who knows who makes those. Right. And right. I mean, do you really um, sit there and look at who the maker of the game is that you're downloading or whatever you're downloading and Google them to make sure it's reputable? People don't. You're right. Yeah. People don't, I mean, I don't at all. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. You and I do because we're smart about it. I just it, said but I don't, right. but yeah. Oh, you don't? Come on. I'm just giving you props. <laughs> now you're going to have to start doing it because I, I... Well, I don't really download any... You know, like I don't have uh-huh. random games on my phone, right? Like it's... I've got like a set number of apps and I don't really that. do like random stuff. Right. So... Um, no, but no, like, you're right. Right. If it was People on my device and I was handing it to like one of my nieces or something, I would probably look into it right. to see what it was. Right. But I also have an Apple, so but in yeah, but outside of that, you're not going to have people do that. People are not going to go to that extent of course to do not. that. Yeah. So I, I think a lot could be done in sort of finding a happy medium where, okay, Android doesn't necessarily want to go to the Apple model of a walled garden, but maybe somewhere in between. Like maybe you could shut down these some of these shady third party sites. I don't know. I mean, you would think so. You would think that would be we'd be working on that a little bit harder. So convincing political campaigns to improve their security is not like working in the private sector, according to Bob Lord, chief security officer of the Democratic National Committee. He told the B-side Security Conference in Las Vegas Tuesday that campaigns are also separate legal entities and that their own staffing and their own funding and everyone has their own level of maturity. They don't have to do a thing that I tell them to do. So that made a lot of the playbooks that I would have around making sure that we can improve the security posture at these organizations, those just don't work. He said, the DNC has anecdotally experienced security is improving and shared a story of one unnamed campaign that called him asking for advice on firewalls. Um, that doesn't seem like a good thing as we're getting closer to 2020. Well, I mean... Only one called him for advice and it was yeah, on Yeah, I mean, he... The, the talk that he gave, it's like, look, I can only go so far. And this has always been the crux of the issue with campaigns and cybersecurity. Everything's temporary. Right. You're, you're not going to stand up servers, stand up your own cloud. Like, it's it just not going to happen. That just not the reality of the situation. So, um, but... I, I think that it's starting to get better because there was a piece of news that dropped this week is Pete Buttigieg actually hired his own CISO for the campaign, which that's unheard of. I, that's definitely the first one that has been hired. That's one in, way in, to get the cybersecurity right. community behind um, him. Yeah. Right. And I actually believe uh, he was here at uh, Black Hat, too, walking around saying, hey, let's let's talk. Let, let's talk to security experts and figure out what uh, we can do campaign-wise. That's so really interesting. That, that's, that's, yeah. you know, that's the flip side of a coin where, okay, there are going to be some campaigns that do figure it out and realize, okay, we need uh, a CISO and we need some somebody in here that's watching over this stuff. And it can't just be temporary and we can't just depend on G Suite or Microsoft uh, Outlook or yeah. any any one of these big temporary, um, not temporary email, but just, you know, the same emails that, that you and I use sure. on, on a yeah. day-to-day basis to actually run uh, a campaign or an enterprise on, it doesn't always work. You would think somebody would have sort of like a campaign in the box that they would sell 
um, to each of the candidates that would have all the security built in to stand up a quick infrastructure well, to make this work. And we've talked about that is we've tried. They've or yeah. we've tried. They've tried to to do that, but then the FCC FEC gets involved and it starts. It gets into weird like political donation laws. Is is this a donation? Is this a service? And there's been a lot of noise around that too because it's just nuts. The the fact that the FEC laws and and, and campaign donation laws actually get into this stuff because it is just a service. It's commodity. Like paper companies aren't tracked by FEC donation laws because they're selling paper. You know, like that's the type of a commodity outlook we need to uh, have around this stuff and it just doesn't seem like it's catching on yet except elsewhere you know uh, good good on Buttigieg's campaign for yeah, yeah. Up. super interesting so Ruben Santamarta an industrial cybersecurity expert from IOActive detailed on Wednesday a vulnerability in Boeing 787 jets that the company apparently doesn't think is a problem Santa Marta last year accessed an internet-exposed Boeing server where he found firmware specifications about the networks on the 787 plane. After reverse engineering the code, he found vulnerabilities that appear to put Boeing jets at risk of denial of service attacks and buffer overflows. But the IO Active team didn't have enough information to determine whether safety risk exists. The company didn't cooperate with the research process, shocker, saying there isn't a problem, and the Federal Aviation Administration agreed. Jen, this can't make you feel good if you're going to get on a Boeing 787. Well, I actually just looked to see what kind of plane I was getting on tonight. (laughs) Opened up my United app. Um, Not that, so that's good. Um, No, and, you know, with the the other plane having problems, you just have to wonder... um, how many more are going to come out and how safe we really are. This is following the same life cycle that we have seen time and time again with enterprises and how they interact with researchers. Yeah. Researchers go to company about a problem. Company says, oh, that's not a problem. Researchers come back and say, yep. yes, yes, in fact it is. Then the company either gets angry, tries to undercut them, or tries to get legal matters involved. And then it turns into this big blow up. And then three or four months later, we finally have the company acquiesce and say, okay, this was a problem. We have fixed yep. it moving forward. This is what's going to happen. And, and it's sad because we're, we're talking about critical infrastructure here. I don't need planes being DDoS. I don't think you want planes being DDoS. I don't no. think anybody wants planes being DDoS. And bad. I don't think Boeing wants planes being DDoS. So I don't, for the life of me, don't understand why these companies don't just play ball. These people are helping you. They're helping. Yeah, I think just people get defensive first and then, you know, eventually probably come around to it. And I wouldn't be surprised if even next week we're talking about more plane manufacturers and some issues found because of the DEF CON Aviation Village that's being oh, stood yeah. up this weekend. And I'm already seeing some really cool stuff come out of it. So, like, the researchers aren't going away. So let's, let's just Boeing, be nice. Yeah. Just, just Bring figure them in. it out. Bring them in. To something that broke last week that I'm sad about, Texas Republican Will Hurd announced he will not return to the House of Representatives after 2020. Hurd, a former CIA officer, has distinguished himself among lawmakers for his attention to cybersecurity issues, including a support for encryption. The plan now, he said, is to solve problems at the nexus between technology and national security. As a congressman, has been as a congressman, he has been an outspoken advocate of encryption for consumers. He's also pushing for security standards for Internet of Things devices 
and pushed for a permanent federal chief information officer who'd be accountable to the Office of Management and Budget. Greg, this doesn't sound very positive for Congress. No, at least from the standpoint of cybersecurity, because Will was smart. Very Will smart. is smart. Will, yeah. Will Will understands how this stuff works, and I always liked how he he was one of the only, if not the only, Congressperson who understand the encryption argument. Yes, where it was where it was one of these things where it's like, look, we don't need to build in back doors because encryption's hard enough to get right. That law enforcement can use the powers that they have, and between that and and this tech not being implemented right like there are ways to figure out cases without having the need for a total backdoor that would obviously end in just ruin for for everybody um you don't hear that you you just don't hear that on capitol hill so look it's not like he's going away i'm sure that he'll stay in dc and if it's the nexus of technology and national security okay you're not leaving dc (laughs) <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's no, very clear. but you're, but it, you know, I imagine he's moving into, um, you know, some sort of consulting company, which just isn't the same thing. Well, and I mean, he's going to be around for a little bit. He's not retiring until his term is up. Like, right. He'll be around until January, whatever, 2021. Yeah. So it's, it, he'll, he'll still be around a little bit and be able to have the same effect that he's always had. But, sure, um, but it's just not the same. And, and, you know, I wonder sitting here at Hacker Summer Camp, um, and, you know, having him be the keynote for Black Hat and then having it taken away, I wonder if he sort of, um, if that came into his thought process of, I'm a cybersecurity guy at heart and um, I'm not being taken seriously as a cybersecurity guy um, because of um, my political affiliation. Right. Well, there's, there's that. And also, I just think the overlying politics of his situation oh, for sure. uh, with with the the um, district he represents. I mean, I, I think he won his district by a handful of votes. Got it. Like a hundred. Yeah. I, I believe it took five or six days to actually figure out who won that race. Um, he's been doing that for a while. I feel like since 2014, since he was elected, his, his races have always been really, really close. And I just get the sense that we look at some of the other... Um, there's been some other announcements in Texas about uh, some people uh, not running for office or, or just they're done at the end of their, their term. And it's clear it's, 2020 is going to be very, very nasty. So I think yes. Will yeah. was like, you know what? I can go make a difference outside of what I'm doing. Like, I don't need to do this again. I'm right. good. Yeah. So to the business side of things, been a busy week business-wise. Uh, cybersecurity firm McAfee is acquiring NanoSec, a cloud security startup focused on security solutions for applications built with the increasingly dominant containers approach. Terms of the deal were not disclosed. Capsulate, the New York-based provider of attack protection solutions for Linux production environments, got funding from Intel Capital. Intel Capital joins existing investors Clear Sky Security, Bessemer Venture Partners, and other strategic investors bringing the total funds raised by Capsulate to $30 million. So this round didn't actually have a price tag on it, but they've raised $30 million in total. Japanese multinational SoftBank will invest $200 million in Cyber Reason, doubling the Boston-based security vendor's investment total as it marches toward an IPO. The deal brings Cyber Reason's total funding to $400 million after prior investments from SoftBank, CRV, Spark Capital, and Lockheed Martin. 
The $200 million in Series E funding comes as part of Cyber Reason's plan to invest in new services and find new clients and then go public within two years. And then the big announcement that came on Thursday. Chipmaker Broadcom formally announced its acquisition of Symantec's enterprise business after the closing bell. Broadcom is paying $10.7 billion in cash. Interim Symantec President and CEO Rick Hill said the remaining consumer business contributed 90% of the company's total operating income, and the company expects to be able to grow revenue for Norton LifeLock and all the other Norton consumer security products that they sell. Capsulate, a New York-based provider of attack protection solutions for Linux production environments, announced a round of funding from Intel Capital estimated at $6.5 million. Intel joins existing investors Clear Sky Security, Bessemer Venture Partners, and other investors, bringing the total funds raised by Capsulate to $30 million. So, Jen, it was a busy week. It was. I mean, obviously, the semantic news is, is really exciting. Um, you know, the Capsulate news is really interesting. Um, I think it's, to me, it seems like a small market, um, you know, but a total capital raise of $30 bucks mostly for strategics, um, it's kind of interesting, right? So, so you're seeing companies probably um, invest in things that they need to use in-house. Yeah, the, the semantic thing was really interesting to me because of what the interim CEO said, that the consumer business contributed 90% of the total company's operating income. And then you have Broadcom coming in with a $10.7 billion bag of money for the enterprise like it seems to me that that the 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 true cash cow there was the consumer side of things like 10.7 billion for what is 10 percent of an overall company just strikes me as something's missing there am i wrong you know i wonder if um they didn't look at like a balance sheet and look at how much it costs to acquire a, a consumer business um and just decided that you know i'm guessing the margins are very small on that okay um, it's it's a lot more expensive to, to catch like you or I as a customer than it is to catch like a big company. Mm. It's going to bring in a lot more money. So I wonder if they just thought the the margins were too small um, to even bother spending money on that. Um, and it's it's quite often you see companies get acquired, they leave some part of the business there that people stay at. I mean, we saw. I mean, locally to us, you know, right? Invincia left got acquired but left behind 26 labs okay um which had been formerly invincia labs um so it's not um not surprising and i think arguably people might say that 26 labs was the bigger piece of that puzzle right um so i think um at least if you ask their their big investors um so i'm not exactly surprised there i'm guessing that that enterprise piece of the business is probably pretty big so yeah, and the cyber reason raised too, I, I would imagine that they're probably going to be the next one to IPO. Like it's just, it's going to happen. Going public within two years, but with that amount of money, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they um, shorten their timeline there. And within a year, we're talking about them going public. Yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, there's not really anywhere else to go, right? I mean, that's a... You're, that, that's that enough money to carry you to an IPO. Yeah, right. that's enough money to carry your IPO, and that's um, getting to the point where it's too much money to go back out and raise private capital again. Right. Okay, so now to our interview with Aaron Higby. Uh, we talked to Aaron about this research that his company, Cofence, did around sextortion campaigns that are really focused on the enterprise. You know, we hear about sextortion campaigns, and they're really more on an individual level, but now they're heading to the enterprise. It's it's crazy. Listen to this interview. Really interesting stuff. Check it out. 
All right, joining us now is a, I believe, one of our only returning guests, Aaron Higby, CTO of CoFence. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Greg. So we're here at Black Hat 2019, and your company, like most companies, uh, put out some really, really interesting research uh, that came out this week around uh, 7 million email addresses that have been impacted by sextortion. So we talk a lot about cybersecurity. We get uh, you know into the technical parts of things, but this is really like social engineering at its ugliest. So talk a little bit about the report and and what you have been seeing. Sure. So um, you know obviously we're in the anti-phishing business, and so every now and then a new sort of scam comes about that gets people excited. And for the past year. We've been hearing a lot from our customers about sextortion emails, and these are those emails that make it look like they've hacked you. And the way they are doing that is they're reusing old passwords from old breaches, and they might say, Dear Jen or Dear Greg, here's your password. Uh, I got into your computer. I know what you've been doing on your computer, and if you don't want me to embarrass you by releasing certain videos, compromising videos that I took of you on your computer, you need to send a ransom essentially to this cryptocurrency Bitcoin address before I'll, I'll do that. Um, and these have been quite effective and we didn't really know to the extent of how large of a problem this was until we started dismantling a botnet that was sending out these sextortion emails. Um, it just so happened that one day we found one of their command and control infrastructure uh, servers that didn't have the best controls on it itself. Okay. And we were able to download the entire database that they were using to do this scam. And it had about 200 million unique email addresses wow. in it. So the email is really that basic and people are sort of falling for it and... Yeah, it, it, I mean, it really no examples is. Of videos. Uh, no, no, but the way that they really get your attention is there's about eight different templates that this botnet recycles. In, and um, the subjects might say something like, I know what you're doing, dash your password. And when you see that plain text password that you know you've used at one point in your life, it puts you into this heightened state of, uh-oh, what, what, what am I actually seeing here? Um, and for a while, we kind of looked at this as a consumer fraud issue, not really something that was impacting businesses. But it wasn't until we started combing through these 200 million email addresses, what we realized what was going on is many employees were using their corporate email address to sign up for some of these sites that have been breached. And as a result of that, they were getting their sextortion emails at work. So now people are worried about their brand, their reputation, their livelihood as far as what happens if my coworkers find out you know, what I've been doing on my computer. So this isn't just a back up a little bit and talk about the scam itself. This isn't necessarily an email that's like, ha ha, got your nudes. It's, we have been like spying on you or yeah, we've, we've hacked your webcam. That's, it, it really preys on, well, I, I don't know, maybe this could have happened. Yeah, absolutely, because probably people have heard about this. I mean, certainly there is malware that people know about that can take control of microphones and cameras. Um, and so the pieces of this make it legitimate enough. So from, you know, what time frame did you collect this data? And is this the first time that you've ever seen something that hones in on this specific type of attack? So we've been tracking variants of this for about a year. Okay. Um, but it was at the end of June where we got a hold of the database that this botnet was using to send out all of these emails. And so what do you do with those emails now that you have them? 
Well, we we first we were thinking, okay, we need to notify our customers because these they're asking us questions about this. So we thought, you know, let's make a searchable database, very much like the Have I Been Owned experience, where an organization can put in their domains, see if they're on it, and then if they can prove that, you know, they're entitled to receive the list of people that may be impacted by it. We've been working with them this week in order to fulfill those requests. So we have a sextortion info center on our website, and we also uh, have it, we're doing that here at Black Hat, and we have some of our researchers that dismantled that botnet here at our booth this week to talk to people about this. So let's talk about that email template that you were talking about. Is that something that, th- there's nobody sitting somewhere in Europe or Asia writing that, correct? That, that seems to be an AI-generated script that they're following. Yeah, it's very likely that they might not be native English speakers, so that's why they're reusing, you know, about eight different templates all of this all along the same line. And what was interesting to me from the phishing angle of it is you can see that technology has fingerprinted these emails because they're reusing the same email over and over again. Finally, the security email gateways caught up, probably started blocking it. So now we're starting to see a variant of it where they take a picture of the email because they know you're not scanning the picture to read the text Interesting. Um, in okay. order to get by, to bypass technical controls. So is that picture then just, it's just put in the body of yeah. an email it's and just, it just looks no different to anybody that's not really paying attention? Exactly. And it's kind of a, a good example of a real low-tech way to, to bypass an email gateway. And is that working? Are people playing, paying ransom on that? Yeah, they are. So we've been uh, watching the Bitcoin payment addresses and because it is a public ledger, we are watching payments come in uh, well over a million dollars. Wow. Okay. What does a typical payment uh, resort in? like? You know, they actually do sort of adjust it for okay. the value of Bitcoin, but you're looking anywhere between about 450 and $650. Okay. So it seems to me they, they want to charge you enough that you're going to comply. Right, of Because course. if it's an exorbitant amount, you might research yeah. this and right. find that. And that's what we hope happens. We hope people take the text from these sextortion emails because we have all the templates in our info center, Google search it, find our info center, realize it's a scam and don't pay. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the templates again because I've been having this conversation at Black Hat this year. AI is always like center square on the buzzword bingo card when it comes to Black Hat, but I'm talking a lot and, and seeing the different ways that AI is weaponized and it's not some like far out sci-fi story. It is like basically these scams that you're, that you're talking about. It's weaponizing tactics that AI has already been implemented into like Google email, for instance, like when you're writing an email and it's pulling words and it, it just autofills. And it seems like more and more that's the type of AI that we're seeing weaponized, especially with scams like this. Uh, how do you figure out from a security perspective how to utilize AI but make sure that you're utilizing it in a way that doesn't become weaponized? I mean, that's a good question. So, you know, people in this industry that are on more of the offensive red teaming, they're always trying to like push the state of the art as far as tooling, maybe to do red team assessments. But certainly cyber criminals are like, hmm, that, that's a good research paper. Let me put that tactic in my botnet. Uh, the one that I'm particularly concerned about is um, 
some tools that were released at Hack in the Box Amsterdam this year okay. that make it extremely easy to do a, a basically uh, to steal someone's tokens from multi-factor authentication, whether it's SMS or even push-based authentication. So they put together a tool set that kind of proxies those requests. Um, right now, we're not seeing that tactic inside of any commercial off-the-shelf phishing kits, but we kind of suspect that'll happen this year. Um, the other thing that we've seen kind of in the AI realm is uh, some researchers put together a pretty clever phishing kit that would react to your Twitter posts and then kind of replay them back to you. So they might say, hey, Greg, I saw your Twitter post about this. And then using an algorithm, they can try to carry on a conversation sufficient enough that you think that this is legitimate and you might click on it. That would absolutely fool me if somebody tried to <laughs> drop a, yeah. uh, an email at me and was like, hey, so your Twitter post, check this out. I'm, I'm probably clicking that link. It, but the good news in all of this is even the low-tech phishing attacks are so successful that these sort of more exotic ways to get people to click, they're, they're for whatever reason, they're not showing up in these commercial phishing kits. Hmm. And I have to guess it's just because, well, they're successful already as is telling people someone got to hold your password, click here to change it. So speaking of the low-tech side of things, there was a recent report uh, from the U.S. Treasury, I believe it was FinCEN, that it's now costing businesses $300 million a month, I believe, when it comes to business email compromise. And that seems to be decidedly low-tech. It's just an email that looks like an executive right. saying, push this money here, please. And um, that money flows out of uh, a company into a criminal's bank account. Um, what are you seeing and what are you telling your customers when it comes to business email compromise? Because it doesn't seem like it's going away. Sure. So it's, it's interesting. You know, last year, a lot of vendors here at Black Hat were tooled up to fingerprint these emails that purport to come from the CEO going to the CFO. Last fall, those same threat actors, they completely shifted gears. So instead of impersonating the CEO and going after finance, they started uh, impersonating individual employees, emailing the payroll and benefits managers mm. in HR saying, hey, I got a new bank. I need you to update my direct deposit details, and here they are. And so it's not that... Um, it's not that business email compromise went away, it's just the story changed and then the victims changed as well to the HR departments instead of finance. So Aaron, normally we end our interviews on a, a random question, but with Black Hat, I, I think it's a good time. We talk so much about uh, security and what customers are doing and what people are doing, but I wanna know, what is one or two things that you do to protect yourself when it comes to cybersecurity? Personally or for CoFence? Well, you don't have to give us like yeah. the, the names of uh, your password managers sure, or any, sure, any sure. You know, we don't want you to expose yourself, <laughs> yeah. but uh, we, want, we want to hear you know, what the professionals do when it comes to protecting themselves online. Yeah, absolutely. This is going to sound so cliche because I... It comes up often, this question comes up so many times, and I can't overstress the importance of a password manager. Um, just do it, commit yourself. If you're not using one, use it. Just start using it today, slowly start to put your passwords in this password manager, and you're gonna be far better than most people that are out there. So I definitely do that. Um, another sort of kooky thing about me personally, I won't use any of my ISP's gear. 
so I don't use the routers that Verizon provide okay. me or, or anything like that. Okay, great. Yeah. All right, Aaron, really appreciate you hopping aboard. Good to talk to you. Wonderful. Thank you. So thanks again to Aaron for joining us. And Jen, as we get ready to head back east, any highlights? Anything that we didn't talk about Black Hat-wise that, that caught your eye? No, not really. Yikes, um, okay. Well, I mean, it's Friday, right? So we're, you know, we're headed um, really to into DEF CON, right? So I think that's usually where, in my opinion, the more exciting news comes out of. Uh, the one thing that caught my eye, and for all the wrong reasons, Uh-oh. was this. Do you hear about this Time AI presentation that went on no. at, at Black Hat? So I spent a good amount of time walking around the expo hall. And there was this company called Crown Sterling. And if you've been in the expo hall, you've seen the booths and yeah. everybody has their, their fancy booths. But this company, Crown Sterling, had this really weird booth. It looked like a mix between like a bad country club and the set of The Bachelorette. Like there was literally a bowl full of roses in awesome. the middle in the middle of their uh of of their booth, of which I was like Okay, this is weird. Did they give um, you a rose? They, they, I, no. I, oh. no, no, I, I did not inquire because I was like, this looks weird. I, I, something's weird here. And then sure enough, they had a vendor presentation talking about their um, product, which is some weird AI product called Time AI, which uses, and I'm reading off their, their website, 5D encryption, which, that's that's not a thing for anybody out there. I mean, you're probably laughing at, at this point. Um, Time AI, this is, I'm reading from their website. Time AI uses five dimensions of encryption, leveraging biometrics, music's infinite variability and dynamic change to secure your data. And Jen, would you believe it that no other encryption system has ever come close? Of course not. It's clearly the best. Uh, uh, they were... In this vendor meeting, and if you go on Twitter, this is not hard to find. They were like shouted down in in this this meeting. Really, there were some experts that watched this presentation where they were like, "This is encryption like you've never seen it before, like beyond quote unquote military grade encryption. This was like galaxy brain encryption." Wow, if if you will, we and need that. There were there were people in there that were like, "Look, this is bullshit." And you need to stop. You're you're bad for for business. You're bad for this community. We never want to see you here again. Wow. Basically. So That's that was exciting. that was interesting from the standpoint of you don't see that a lot. And I think that I actually am am for it. I mean, to the point where it doesn't escalate into like a fist fight. But um, you know, I've... shouting down the snake oil salesman, I think, is something that needs to happen because. What else do you have? Like, you need to be called out for your bullshit. Well, I kind of feel like you all now know how it is to sort of be a VC because I feel like, you know, I sit through these coming pitches sometimes and I'm just like, that's complete bullshit. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, whatever it is, like, let me just search in a couple words into Google and, oh, look, what right. you're telling me isn't true. So I feel like, you know, we get, often see a lot of snake oil too. Um, and I don't feel like people see that as much, and I don't think people call it out as much as they should. Yeah, so it was interesting to see that uh, called out. So with that, we are heading back east. 
Hope everybody had a wonderful Hacker Summer Camp. We'll see you next week. And as always, stay curious. (laughs) 